0: Take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. We're in a series uh, that we have entitled Elijah, A Man Like Us, and we've been looking at the life of Elijah and the story of this great Old Testament prophet. And uh, we come to 1 Kings uh, chapter 18 verses 1 uh, through 20 this morning as a way of quick review. Uh, We uh, learned in chapter 17, in fact we've been in one chapter up to this point, uh, 1 Kings 17, that uh, Elijah has uh, gone to Ahab and to the people of Israel and he's pronounced a famine. This famine has come as a result of uh, the disobedience and the rebellion not only of the king of Israel, Ahab, and Jezebel the queen, but also because of the people turning their hearts from Jehovah uh, to the God of Baal. And as a result of that, Elijah goes before the king, he pronounces this judgment, and then right after that, it seems that a word of the Lord comes from uh, the Lord, and, and it goes to Elijah and he says, "Take off, I want you to leave this place and go to a place called the Careth Ravine." He would stay at the Careth ravine for about a year, and while the famine grew worse and worse, we are told that he would be fed miraculously by ravens, bringing him uh, bread and meat, both night and day, and then he would drink. From a brook. Well, after a long period of time, we know because of the famine, the brook dries up. And at about that time, another word of the Lord comes. And it tells him to go to a place called Zarephath. Zarephath uh, is uh, northwest of uh, where he was at on the Mediterranean Sea, what we would call modern-day Lebanon. And uh, he's to go there. And this is a significant place because this is the, uh, if you will, the neighborhood of Jezebel. Uh, This is the place where Baal worship was most pronounced. And he is to go there. And the word of the Lord says that he was to go there and a widow would provide for him. He goes He makes the 100-mile trek, he comes to Zarephath and he finds the widow and uh, he learns that she's ready to die with her son, that there's no food left. In fact, they're about to make their last meal. As a result of that, Elijah says, hey, I serve a great God, a wonderful God, a God who has provided me. For me in this last year, and I will say, as a prophet of God, that the jug of oil and the uh, jar of flour will not go empty until the famine ends. And so they are able to eat in plenty uh, in, amidst this incredible famine that takes place. And then we're told, as we learned last week, uh, that sometime later, as they're enjoying the provision of God, uh, that the widow's son uh, becomes ill. He becomes so ill that he dies. And uh, we remember last week that uh, the woman becomes undone and Elijah takes the young boy, takes him upstairs where he was staying and uh, prays over the the boy and uh, life is restored to that boy and a wonderful reunion takes place in that widow's home. Well now today we move to chapter 18. And after that boy had been raised from the dead, we find ourselves now looking at what I'd like to call an interlude. Uh, there's uh, some amazing climaxes in the life of Elijah, one of them being the raising of the sun. We'll look at another, in fact, the greatest of the climaxes, if you will, of the story of Elijah next week when we look at uh, Elijah taking on 850 prophets of the Azarag group and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. But in between those two high points is what I'd like to call a valley. It's one of those scenes in the middle of two major scenes that helps bring some context and some understanding to our text. And so let's look at 1 Kings 18, verses 1 through 20. It's a larger passage of Scripture than we've dealt with so far, so I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word as I read this for us this morning. 1 Kings 18, verses 1 through 20. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah... Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground, and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master. Elijah is here. What have I done wrong? asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death. As surely as your as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom uh, claimed you were not there, he made them swear that they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave. If I t- go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah's here. He will kill me. Elijah said, "'As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, "'I will surely present myself to Ahab today.'" So Obadiah went to Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, "'Is that you, you troubler of Israel?' "'I have not made trouble for Israel,' Elijah replied, "'but you and your father's family have. "'You have abandoned the Lord's commands "'and have followed the Baals. "'Now summon the people from all over Israel,' To meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 uh, prophets of Azra who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Let's pray. Father God, we come to a, an important part of the text where we are introduced to yet again another character in this study. And Lord, uh, in this interlude, if you will, working up to this great. Showdown that will take place in our study next week, Uh, we are reminded of the kind of people that you have called us to be. Three examples we are given this morning of three different men. Lord, some that were able to serve you well, others uh, who didn't serve you at all. And Lord, the consequences that come as a result of that. Lord, I pray that today we would be found to have a faith like Elijah, to be one who would continue to obey and do as his Father in heaven has commanded him to do. Lord, I pray that that would be our heart's desire and that we would not just hear these words, but we would live that way in the days and weeks to come. Father, I pray that you would speak through me in a powerful way that your word might change lives as a result of your Holy Spirit's work in them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. we live in a world where it is easy to be a customer or a consumer far beyond any time that we've ever lived before we have the advantage if we want to know about a restaurant if we want to know about a certain company if we want to know anything about a place where we are going we simply have to go onto the internet and type that company's name and look at the reviews of individuals who have already been there what a great thing for us as consumers In fact, every time I uh, go to Amazon to buy a book, I I will no doubt stop and look at many of the customer reviews to find out what someone says about that book or that product. In fact, it has taught me a great deal of when to say yes to buying a certain item or where to uh, go and eat. Uh, If I will go or not will be based on that very idea of the reviews. And in thinking of that, I I wonder if you wouldn't mind me being a bit... um, expansive in my uh, illustration to think for a moment what God may be doing up in heaven. I wonder if God sits behind a celestial desk, if you will, and he looks at our life and asks the question after observing our life, what type of review might I give to Tim? What type of review might I give to you, the child of God who is called to obey and to serve me? Might I say that uh, in some ways you do a phenomenal job, and yet in other ways there are things that are lacking. You see, reviews tell a lot for us as consumers. They tell us what kind of customer service might be involved. They tell us uh, information, especially if it's a restaurant or a hotel, customer service and the cleanliness of the place and all that. But what in regards to a customer service review might God say about your life and mine this morning? How many stars might he give after looking at your life in this past week? What might he say in that paragraph below that would speak of you following God with reckless abandonment? Or would you be one who would say, man, God would say, I I looked at this individual's life and there was nothing there. There's nothing positive to say in regards to him or to her. As we look at these 20 verses, we are given three examples of people who I believe we can give a review to. Some, as I said in my prayer, do very well. Others don't. So let's go ahead and look at these three men's lives, Elijah, Obadiah, and Ahab, and let's ask the question today, what type of life did they live? What kind of review would God give? And then we we'll figure out which one of those are we and how might we need to change how we're living. Now notice, first of all, this morning... In regards to Elijah, we see a life of surrendered service. Notice in your text this morning, in verse uh, 1 and 2, that it says, after a long time and in the third year, we're giving some information to put us in the right place in regards to this narrative. It has been three years now since Elijah uh, had approached Ahab and told him that the famine was going to come. Three years is a long time. And this three years for Elijah has been a time of waiting and then hurrying up and then waiting again. And yet again here at the opening of chapter 18, the word of the Lord comes. And again, a reminder for us that God knows where Elijah's at and he's going to speak to Elijah in the time of his choosing. And again, a reminder for us, for many of us who may be sitting there waiting on a word from the Lord this morning, that it will come and it will come in God's due time And in his due place and season. And so we're told after a long time, in the third year, we've got Elijah still sitting at the uh, widow's home. Probably still sharing the good news of of God and all that he had done. And basking in the glory of the food each and every day. And the restoration of the life of the son. What a joyous home that must have been. That the word of the Lord comes. Now notice what the word of the Lord says. It says, go... And present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. And it says in verse 2, So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Here is the decision that needs to be made. After a long period of waiting, would Elijah do what God had commanded him to do? Now notice that this life of surrendered service involves, first of all, doing what is required. And I think it's important that we recognize that each one of the requirements that God had in the step of obedience that he had given Elijah was a little different each and every time. Now notice that when Elijah is is, is told to go and present himself to Ahab the first time, after doing that, he is told then right away to go and hide. And I wonder if Elijah was wondering at that point, God, what are you doing? If I'm going to go talk with the king, if I'm going to present myself before a nation and pronounce judgment upon them, then give me some time to spend with the people and start articulating a call to repentance. But God, what you're asking for me to do is go and hide. I've never heard of a prophet doing that. That just doesn't make any sense. And now three long years have gone where he has hidden himself. He's been in utter seclusion only to be engaging in the life of of two individuals, the widow and her son. And now at a time where Elijah probably wants to stay hidden because he probably no doubt has heard that, of course, he's seen the famine take place. He's seen the three years of utter devastation of no rain or dew and what it could do to a land. But on top of that... He also probably is well aware that Jezebel is going throughout the land and killing off prophets, and that he is the most marked individual. He's the most wanted man in all of the land. And now God says, all right, you don't need to go and hide yourself. Now I want you to go to the very man who wants you dead. You know, obedience is pretty easy. It's, obe- it's easy, obedience is, when it makes sense to us, right? When it works for us. I have no problem obeying when I can look at the command that God has given, and it makes sense to me. I don't have to think about it, and and it works for me, but I wonder what Elijah must have been thinking. Hey, I was ready to articulate the truth of of your word and and pronounce the judgment you have to all of the people back in 17 verse 1, but now it's 18 verse 1, it's not a good time. This is going to mean a death sentence for me. But notice, that isn't what Elijah does. There's no question in regards to it. Hey, hey, I know you're a busy man, God, but have you been aware of what's going on down here? This is not a good time to be a prophet of yours. This is a good time to just hang out and sit and wait till things get better. But notice, it's not just doing what is required, but notice what comes right after that. God here reinforces, if you will, By his promises, the reason why Elijah needs to go. He says, I want you to go and do this, Elijah. But instead of just leaving you hanging there, instead of just telling you to do something that seems to go beyond your thinking, God gives a promise that would inspire the prophet. Notice what he says, I will send rain on the land. He says, you're not just going to go and you're not going to stand before Ahab all by yourself and and be worried about him taking your life. When you go, you are going to bring forth rain in the season of time that you encounter uh, Ahab. And so don't worry about it. I'm with you. Don't worry about it. I will be there and I will provide for you just as I did before. And this is something that we see over and over in Elijah's life. This is a theme that we see. When God calls us to a place of obedience, God always provides what we need to make that step possible. Go to the Kareth Ravine, and I have commanded ravens to feed you there. Meaning, I'm going to send you to a place, but I'm going to give you the provision that you need. I want you now to go to Zarephath. I have commanded a widow to provide for you there. Understand this. It is of epic proportion that we understand this. And that is when God directs, God gives. When God says for us to go in a certain direction, he doesn't leave us hanging there, but he will give us the needed measure of faith to accomplish the work that is needed to be done. He does it every time. He did it in the life of Moses. Remember Moses before uh, the uh, burning bush? He says, I can't do this. I've got a stuttering problem. I, I can't stand before Pharaoh. And he says, I'm going before you. Your words will be my words. You just need to go and I will take care of the rest. He does that with many of the other ones. Abraham, he says, I want you to go to a far-off land. And Abraham must have been wondering, what am I going to do there? And God says, don't worry about it. I will go with you, and I will make a mighty nation out of you. We even see in one of the most famous passages of Scripture, Matthew 28, that he doesn't just do this with Old Testament saints. But when we are given with the disciples the great commission, he says, I want you to go into all of the world, and I want you to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them all that I've commanded you. And he says, and surely I am with you always. You're going to be able to do this job, people. And the reason why you're going to be able to do this job is because I am always going to be with you. I remember uh, very early on uh, in the process of uh, being brought on to be a pastor of this church, I, had, I, I would wake up with so many doubts and I would tell Amanda, this is the day where I say I'm, I'm done, I'm, I'm going to uh, just move out of the way and let the church uh, pick out another man. I just can't see how God would want me, of all people, to be the preacher at Village Bible Church. And I was at an incredibly low point, really, really struggling with it, saying, I just, I can't see it. It doesn't make any sense to me. And I got a call from a man, some of you know his name, Keith Henderson. Keith Henderson is an older man in our church, and, uh, and he called me one day, and unknowing, un- uh, unknowing of anything that was going on in the circumstances or situations, he said this. He says, please don't think that I'm some raging charismatic or, or some uh, fanatical individual. But I got to tell you, he says, I don't know what to do with this. But the last couple nights I've, I've had dreams. And these dreams have said over and over again that, that it, it shows you being the pastor at Village Bible Church. He says, I don't know what to do with it. And he started to cry on the phone. But he says, I think God's telling me you need to go and, and be the pastor of Village Bible Church. I got off the phone and Amanda's my witness. I began to weep saying, Lord, is that your word? And I believe it was with all my heart that God was wanting to give a measure of faith so that as a young man, I would do what I believe God had called me to do and what God was calling this church to do. God will give you the measure of faith you need to make the decisions of obedience that God has. for you. He says, hey... You don't need to just go by yourself and do this. I'm going with you and I'm going to send rain on the land. Now notice the third thing that we see. And that is that this life of service is responsive to every command. It's easy, again, to obey the commands that come easy to us. But what about the difficult ones? Here he's being told to go show himself. This would mean a death sentence in many ways. But God says he's going to go with him. And notice what the text says. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Oh, the words of that little song we sang in in Sunday school. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You say, well, that's a simple understanding of the text. I could have drawn that out by myself, Tim. And I will tell you, it may be kindergarten to trust God and obey, but it is the kindergarten lesson that you and I need to hear each and every week. It is so easy for us to not obey the Word of God. And nowhere in our text do we see, but God, or God, I think I'll do this instead, or God, you should pick somebody else. None of that. The noblest character of Elijah is seen, that he trusted his God and he obeyed his God. Brothers and sisters, we will do ourselves well this morning to obey the word of the Lord when it comes the first time. We teach our children this. We even get angry with them. And there's a part of me that is is feeling a bit guilty right now that I'm on my sons over and over again. Obey, obey, obey. And I'm so thankful that they're not smart enough to turn around and say, hey, it works for you too, old man. You got a daddy in heaven and you're not obeying him. You want to do your own thing. And so while you're fomenting with your anger about me not picking up my stuff, what about you who's not living up to the obedient call that God has in your life? A kindergarten lesson that, once again, this prophet teaches us. He is responsive. And why is it that he does it? Because even before Jesus would walk in this earth, Elijah understood one thing. And that was, if you love God, you will obey his commands. If we say we love God, then we'll do what he says. And this is what we see in the life of Elijah. Are you an Elijah this morning who is surrendered in your service to God? Who is ready to go whenever God says that you're in the army of Almighty God and when your general says it's time to go, you say, I'm ready. You point the way and I'll go. What a lesson we can learn this week in regards to that. Notice the second individual that comes up. We're introduced to this new guy and his name is Obadiah. In Obadiah, we see in uh, verse 2, Uh, in the second part of verse, uh, let's see here, not verse 2, verse 3, that the famine was severe in Samaria and Ahab had summoned Obadiah. Now we learn a couple things about Obadiah. He was in charge of uh, of, uh, Ahab's palace. We also learn that Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. The third thing that we learn is that not only is he in the palace of Ahab and not only is he a a devout believer in uh, Jehovah, but we know that during this time where Jezebel is relieving the land of Yahweh's prophets, that he has now hidden 150 in two caves and is feeding them from the table of Ahab and Jezebel. So we're learning some good stuff about this guy. Now, I must preface that there's much speculation in regards to Obadiah, and there's a great deal of disagreement on uh, what kind of faith this Obadiah had. A couple people share this. Philip Keller writes in his commentary on Elijah's life, Obadiah is the most baffling and bewildering of all characters in the Bible. F.B. Meyer, a famous pastor of over 100 years ago, says, It is startling to find such a man as Obadiah in the court of Ahab's. J. Hammond, another commentator, says, There are few things as surprising and suggestive in all the Bible than the life of Obadiah. Well, some commentators will say of Obadiah, he's the greatest guy in the world, everything that he does is wonderful, there are still other commentators who will denounce him outright because of his actions and his engagement with the people of Ahab and Jezebel. I don't think either of them per se are 100% right. I want to take somewhat of a middle ground in regards to it. As we look at Ahab, I'm sorry, Obadiah's life, we see things we can commend and we see things that we can criticize. So let's look at two things that we can commend in the life of Obadiah. The first thing that we need to understand is that he honored God. He honored God. The first thing that we need to understand about this commendation that we give is that within his service, he honored God. He was a devout believer in the Lord. It is here we get unquestionable information about Obadiah. The Lord saw fit by the work of the Holy Spirit to describe of this man that he was a devout believer in the Lord. What a great thing to attain to. And Obadiah is that, that when God looked down, he says he's, he's a devout believer. Now notice it's not that he just honors God, but this devout believing takes place when Baal worship is the most predominant and most popular of all religions in the land. And as a result of that, not only does he have to live in, uh, engaged in that kind of a life uh, around him, but he has his boss and his wife, his boss's wife, as the main proponents of it each and every day. Being a follower of Jehovah's, having to go to a place where Jehovah would be mocked, where Jehovah would be knocked down, where Jehovah would be uh, said to be nothing, would be garbage. Some of you go to work in places like that, where you say the name of Jesus and, and they laugh at you. You say the name of Jesus and they call you a freak. I know that our teenagers go to school every day where the name of God is dishonored. And the only time we ever hear of God's name is when it is used in vain. This is the kind of life that Obadiah lived in. And yet amidst all of that pressure, the text tells us that he was devoted to his God. That's important. Notice the second thing, verse 4. He hid the prophets. I'd like to think of Obadiah with the last name. We aren't given a last name. But I want to give Obadiah a last name, and that is Schindler. Instead of Oskar Schindler, we have Obadiah Schindler. If you remember the, the story, or the movie was made famous of Schindler's List. Oskar Schindler is one who was in Nazi Germany. He himself, a German, who helped out thousands of Jewish people from going to the death camps by providing for them and taking care of them. Obadiah did this long before Oskar Schindler did in World War II. He goes, knowing that they're going to lose their life, Obadiah does what would be uh, treason in his land, and that is that he would hide them in two caves, and he would hide them and provide for them, not just once, that would be easy, but to provide for them over and over and over again. This guy's faith is, is pretty amazing. In these two ways, he is to be commended as being a person in a difficult situation that he would show courage, faith, and great effort for his God and he was equal to that task. To that end, he should be commended for such a work. But, I have some things I want to criticize and I want to do so very cautiously knowing that I don't have the full picture but based on my study there are things that bring out questions and notice some of the things that we need to criticize in regards to his service. Now, I don't want to take a pound of flesh out on this guy, nor do I believe that in some ways I would have done any better than Obadiah would have. He's in a tough situation, but there are some things that need to be brought out. Now, there are a couple areas that are brought to mind. Now, some of you may say, right away, and you can disagree with me, and that's okay. Is it not enough, Tim, that it says that he feared the Lord and was devout? Shouldn't that settle it? Shouldn't that mean that he is above reproach in every way? I would ask you to compare a passage of Scripture with that, and that is is Second Peter 2, 7, and 8 that speaks of Lot in the book of Genesis. Peter says that Lot was a righteous man. But any of us, if we were to ever look at the life of Lot, while we have to hold with great uh, strength the idea that because the Scripture says that Lot was a righteous man, that he was a righteous man, but if we look at the narrative of his life in Genesis, i got to be honest with you, there are some glaring mistakes in the life of Lot. Lot chooses the land of Sodom over another land because he sees all that's going on in the city. And he moves close to the city and later on in the text it says he moves into the city and he's engaged in a town. He's immersed in a culture that is hell-bent on going against God and his word. We learn later on that there's an incredible indiscretion that takes place after the destruction of Sodom that once again brings question into while God says he is a righteous man, it is a reminder that he is not a perfect man. And just as Lot is, so Obadiah, while being righteous, has some areas to critique. First of all, the first thing we need to critique or to criticize, if you will, is his employment. His employment. Obadiah worked for wicked people. He worked for wicked people. His very involvement uh, would be a difficult thing for him to stay devoted to God. First of all, he would have to muffle his witness. He would never be able to share publicly that he is a follower of Jehovah's. The reason why I know that is because anybody who said that they were a follower of Jehovah's, Jezebel was killing. And so it's not a far-flung speculation to think that Obadiah had to stay silent about his faith, that he couldn't say anything about the God whom he served. The second thing that we need to understand in regards is not only did he have to remain silent, but he would also be privy and be a part of some of the diabolical activities of Ahab and Jezebel. You think all that killing that was going on, there wasn't plans of it taking place in Ahab's court. You don't think that there were times where Ahab, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Obadiah saw the death of of brothers and sisters in Christ and followers of Yahweh, that it didn't happen before his eyes? Well, you say, well, Tim, you don't know that to be true. I think it's hard-pressed to think that he wouldn't have been a part of those things, and we've got to ask those questions. Obadiah, what were you thinking? How could you be employed by such a people? And how could you allow uh, to stand idly by knowing that your bosses were doing horrific things? It would be like being an assistant to Saddam Hussein or Muammar Gaddafi and trying to be a Christian. I'm telling you, that's a hard thing to do. That'd be a hard thing that your conscience, I would think, in the life of any Christian would be seared to the max because of what you see and what you're a part of, even though you yourself may even secretly be doing things to try to change that. But notice, he was also engaged in the wrong practice. The, he worked for wicked people. He was engaged in the wrong practice. Notice what the text says. It says in uh, chapter 18, that in uh, verse 5, Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any of our animals. Obadiah's uh, role as a child of Yahweh's was to probably spend time in prayer and calling people to repentance. That's what the prophets, no doubt, were doing at that time. And what is Obadiah doing? Obadiah's looking for grass for animals that's not the job of a believer in a world where God's judgment is taking place and what a reminder for us that as Christians we need to be careful that we're not so busy in the temporal things of life that we've given up on the eternal Obadiah is practicing while he's a good employee to his boss in some ways I've got to bring out the issue that he's not being a very good Christian in a pagan world again you may disagree with me but notice it goes even farther than that, not just in regards to his employment, but in regards to his excuses. Look at verse 7 through 15. Here there's a conversation that takes place. The great Charles Spurgeon says that in his interaction with Elijah, that Elijah doesn't seem to give any kind of positive praise Obadiah. In fact, this isn't even a conversation between two fellow believers, but one of a stern rebuke and reprimand, Spurgeon says, towards Obadiah. Notice what he says. As As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah meets him. Obadiah recognizes him. We don't know how, but most commentators believe that Obadiah was there when Elijah gave the pronouncement in Ahab's court three years ago. And so Obadiah sees him. He recognizes him. Now notice what he says. He says, uh, let's see here, in uh, verse, um, verse 8 or 7. Is it really you, my Lord, Elijah? There's a play on words that takes place here in verse 8. Yes, Elijah replies, now go tell your master. Notice that Obadiah wants to be connected with Elijah. And he says, hey, Lord, I'm ready to do whatever you ask. Is it really you? I'm here for you. And notice what Elijah says. He says, not, yes, you know, I'm your master as a prophet or anything like that. He says, go tell your master, Ahab, that I'm here. Elijah doesn't connect him with himself as a believer. He says, hey, the guy you follow is Ahab. Notice the next thing that we see in these excuses. He goes on, he says, I want you to go and tell Ahab that I'm here. Notice what he says in verse 9. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, and he goes on, any nation has been asked if you're in their country, and they've had to swear that you're not in there, he says in verse 10 and 11. But he says, but if I tell you at the end of verse 11 to go to my master and say, Elijah's here, I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when you leave. So if I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, He will kill me. I got to be honest with you. As I look at Obadiah's life, I see excuse after excuse after excuse. And again, I don't want to be hard on this guy, but I'm really struggling as I read about him, as I try to study him, that I see what he's saying is, Hey, I'm willing to be obedient. I'm willing to do what you say, but how do I know that God isn't going to take you somewhere else? Now, compare that to Elijah's obedience. God says, go, and and Elijah went. Elijah says, hey, I want you to tell Ahab I'm going to be here. Come and meet me. And he says, how do I know you're not just going to disappear again like you did three years ago? Give me some help. Help me understand that because I I don't want to die. I don't want to die, and that's too much for me to do. What a different response. And then notice what happens. As if he wants to make sure that Elijah's aware of who he is. He says in verse 13, Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I always get nervous when we write our own press clippings. And it seems what Obadiah is doing. Hey, by the way, let me pull out of my shoebox, and I know most of you guys have it. The shoebox comes out, and it's, you know, these old newspapers that, that speak of your renown on the football field or basketball court. And look, in this, this game I scored 22 points, and in this game I had 15 assists and four touchdowns in this game. And, and it's all great and wonderful, but the problem is it's all in the past. And Obadiah says, hey, by the way, I've got some good press. I've been an obedient guy. Struggle with that. While it's true, he's done an amazing work. He is trying to explain why he can't do something in the present because of what he's done in the past. You know how many times I've heard people say uh, to to people in the church, I'm not going to serve in this way because let me tell you for 20 years I served years ago doing this, that, and the other thing. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, we may even think about putting a name somewhere with your name on it. But let's talk about obedience today. What is God calling you today? He hasn't killed you yet. You haven't died. And so, so you're still able to serve God. And so don't talk about what you did yesterday. Talk about what you're going to do for God today and what you're looking forward to doing for God tomorrow. Obadiah misses this, my friends. He misses it and he wants to make it clear to Elijah, hey, I'm a, I'm a good Christian, I'm a good follower of God, look at what I've done. And I gotta tell you, it, it, it leaves me wanting as a believer because I see some of my own excuses of not wanting to follow God. And so while Elijah shines in his review of faith, I'm here to contend that Obadiah starts out well and fades quickly. In my opinion, Obadiah is a compromised believer. In my opinion, Obadiah is like many of you today who talk about how devoted they are to God. But when the rubber meets the road on some random weekend when God says, I want you to go, the excuses come. When God says, I want you to do this certain thing, I want you to speak up at work, I want you to be my light in a world of darkness, you say, but I can't. I'm not good at this. Lord, I did that back in the day. I invited kids to Awana. I I was big in the youth group. But now I'm older and, man, that may mean I lose a job or that may mean I lose some position in my neighborhood. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, when God says, go, remember Elijah, he went, no questions asked. Obadiah seems to bring up excuses, and questions. I don't have a lot of time left, so let's look at Ahab. Ahab, we see a life of selfish service. We'll learn more about Ahab, but let's just highlight a couple things. True to his word, Elijah says, as surely as the Lord, in verse 15, lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. And notice verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said, Is that you, troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all of Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And he says, bring the prophets. There's a couple of things that we see in regards to Ahab's selfishness. We know that he is a part of a life of sin because of his selfishness. Instead of pursuing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he starts dabbling with false gods. Because it wasn't good enough for him to follow God. He had certain desires and certain wants and certain things that he needed in his life that were more important than what God was going to give. And so he pursues a different God. He marries a, a defiled woman named Jezebel. And, and why would he do that? Because he was selfish, because of the things that he wanted. It seems that his marriage to Jezebel was a political one. That it wasn't probably based as much on love, especially the way that they interact with each other. It just doesn't seem all that healthy later on, our text will tell us. But it's political. So there's selfishness even in who he marries, But notice what happens as a result of it. When you turn your back on God and you follow your own selfish desires, notice what happens first. You will fail miserably in your role. Ahab is the king, the king of all of Israel. And you would think that he would find himself in the courtyard of his palace. You would think that he would be talking about the affairs of the land. You would think that he would be talking about how to help his people in a time of famine. And what is the king of Israel and his chief of staff doing? They're out looking for grass and water for stupid animals. What a failure! What a joke! Let me tell you something. When you turn away from God and you start following your own ways, you will fail miserably in your life. Oh, it may be fun and it may bring some amounts of pleasure, but when it comes to what God has called you to and the position that he's given you, you go as the prodigal son did from being a son in a rich man's home with all of the needs being taken care of to being one who is trying to steal food out of a pig pen from a pig this guy's failing miserably. He's insensitive. It nowhere says that he's even thinking about the people in his land. He's not worried about their well-being. He's worried about the dumb, stupid, and I can't add any more words to it, the animals of his day. What an indictment of us in America. I am so tired, and please hear me. This is extra credit, by the way, that that we see hostility towards animals and these Hollywoodites get on and say, don't hurt the kitties and the doggies and all of that. But where are those people when we're killing millions of our babies? Where is that? This is the failure of people. We get so focused in on the moronic that we forget that which is moral. And this is what Ahab's doing. He, he's not even thinking about his people. And he's completely inept in the life of that he is called to live. He's the king, and he's out looking for grass and water. What a joke. What an absolute joke. This reminds us that when you follow your own ways, while it may look smart and and right with you, it is utter foolishness, and that's why the Bible says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Who's the fool? Ahab. Notice what he does in verses 17 and 18. He flings accusations towards others. Notice he comes and he says, you're the troublemaker, Elijah. You're the one. You're the problem. When you're starting to live selfishly in your life, you're going to find yourself failing miserably in the role that God has called you to. But likewise you will fling accusations of blame towards other people. It's not my fault that these issues have happened. It's not my fault that the famine has hit this land. It can't be my fault. I'm the king. It's got to be someone else's fault, and I'm going to find whoever's fault it is. And let me tell you something. When you're living selfishly, you will find every way to blame someone else but yourself for the struggles and consequences that come to life. I can't tell you over and over again how I've heard people time in and time out who have blamed someone else. For their sin. Well, it's not my fault. It's so-and-so's fault. And you know, it, it's, not, it's not very new. Adam and Eve were in the garden. Adam sins. And what is the first thing that he says to God when God comes? The woman you gave me, she made me do it. Oh, in our sin, how quick we are to pass the blame to someone else. And Elijah puts him in his place. And he says, you know what the problem is? It has nothing to do with me. I'm just the messenger. He says in verse 18, he says, you have forsaken the commands of God. You've forsaken them. The reason why this famine has come, the reason why people are dying, the reason why you find yourself in the futility of your own life, pursuing uh, grass and water for dumb animals, is because you and you alone have forsaken the commands of God of God. Brothers and sisters, some of us are dealing in some tough trials and tribulations and struggles, and we want to pass the buck to everybody else. We want to blame it on the economy. We want to blame it on on, on bad karma. We want to blame it on everything. And I will tell you, take some time and ask the question, is the reason, as we talked about last week, the reason for my trial and tribulation as a result of my sin Remember I said that the woman, the widow, asked the right question? Did this death happen as a result of my sin? That was a good question. Ahab should have been asking that. Three years, no rain, no water. You would have thought it would have dawned on him that he would have said, maybe it is me. Maybe he's right. Maybe I need to bow the knee to God. But he doesn't. A life of selfish service. I've got to close this out, and so let's go to some guiding principles this morning some guiding principles. Within this interlude, which one are you? Who are you in God's opinion? Are you Elijah? If you're Elijah this morning, then my words of application for you are clear. Remain steadfast in obedience today as you have in the past. Don't live in yesterday's victories, but say, today, Lord, as surely as you call it today, I'm ready to serve you as I did in my youth. I'm ready to serve you wherever you're going to call me to go, even if it means I'm old, even if it means I'm going to have to walk out in faith and do what you've called me to, even though it doesn't make any sense, just as I did before, I'm going to do it again. Remain steadfast in your obedience if you're an Elijah this morning. But maybe God is, is calling you, and, and, and sharing with you that maybe you've got some Obadiah in you. And maybe you're an Obadiah this morning. And I would say to you, renounce areas of compromise. Renounce areas of compromise. Get rid of them. Get rid of those areas of compromise. That you're living one way on Sunday and you're living another way on Monday through Saturday. Get rid of that compromise. So that you can begin to live consistently. And here's the important thing. That you'd be able to live publicly. For Christ no matter the cost. How many people on Monday know that you're a believer? Not that you just go to church, but that you're a believer. How many people know in your school and in your neighborhood that everybody else may serve the God of the Amalekites, as Joshua said, but as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. Can your neighbors say that about you? They should, I mean, we are to be light. How can we be light if people don't know who we are? If you're an Obadiah today, get rid of that compromise and live publicly and consistently for God. And finally, maybe today the Spirit is convicting you that you're an Ahab. And I would say just simply this, repent of your sins. Stop blaming others. You can come up with all the reasons on why you're a sinner and it comes back down to you just as it did for me. It's it's all about us. We're the sinners. It isn't God's fault. It isn't our parents' fault. It isn't our environment's fault. It is our fault. We are all like sheep have gone astray, each to our own way. We have wandered away from the truth. And so my word to you is return to God before it's too late. Return to God. As today is called, today you get rid of the bitterness in your life, you get rid of the sin in your life, and you turn to Jesus, and today you make the day of salvation in your life. And you say, no more am I going to try to live on my own. No more am I going to pursue selfishness, but I'm going to pursue God and Him alone. My prayer is that wherever you're at this morning, that God, not your pastor, not your wife or your husband, not the people in your small group, but God would be able to say as he looks down that you have passed the test and that you are running the race and not being disqualified. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for this interchange that takes place. And Lord, we can love the, the mountaintop experiences of the raising of a child and, and the showdown of hundreds of false prophets, and you're one. But Lord, the truth that is contained in this interaction in these first 20 verses is important for us to pause and to reflect. And so Lord, there is no doubt in a room filled with this many people that we have people that represent each one of these men. And Lord, I pray that through the gift of your Holy Spirit, each of us, including myself, that we would do an examination that we would seek to know if we are living the life of faith that you've called us to, or if there's compromise, or if there's selfishness, that we would rid ourselves of that so that we can live in light of the faith walk that you've called us to, that we would live in light of your holiness, that we would live as your son, Jesus Christ, did. It is, Lord, when we pursue you in that way that we give you glory We give you honor and we give you praise. Lord, I pray today that starting from the point that we leave this pew, that we would trust and obey you in every way. Give us the strength to do that, Father, we ask. In Jesus Christ's holy and precious name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.